Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're out there to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For today's bonus episode of Life on the Line, I spoke over Skype not with a war veteran, but a veteran of writing about them. Michael Veach is a well-known author, actor, comedian, and former ABC TV and radio presenter. His publishing bibliography includes an impressive list of books about Australian pilots who fought in World War II. Among others, he's the author of Flack, Fly, Heroes of the Skies, 44 Days, and out now is his new book, Barney Greatrex. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much, Alex. Nice to be here. So, Michael, your interest in World War II history, in particular World War II aviation, when did that start and where did it come from? Nowhere where you'd think. I don't have a military tradition in my family. Well, having said that, my granddad actually had a a pretty active war in the Navy in World War II. Uh, He was in Darwin for almost the entire length of the Pacific War, saw every air raid of Darwin ever had, including the big one in February, lost a lot of his friends. And then he was on minesweepers based out of Darwin. But I didn't really know him. He died when I was very young. And uh, my, my father didn't even know much about what his father had done, which is quite odd as well. Dad himself was too young for the Second World War. I, I, I think my interest just came around from making model planes as a kid. I'm not not an only child, but I often I thought I grew up as one because my siblings are all much older than me and they, you know, kids left home back in the 60s as opposed to what they do now is hang around and annoy their parents until their parents are 70 <laughs> years old. Um, so I sort of grew up by myself and, you know, before the age of screens, I, you know, I think kids had more interesting hobbies than they, they do now. And I, I, I just started making making planes, the FX and Ravel and the Frog planes. And from that, I just became interested in the stories and the history. And, of course, when I was that age, the people who had flown them were still in abundance and relatively young, younger than I am now, which is pretty bloody scary, I can tell you. And I developed a knack of sort of talking to them about what they'd done in the war at a time when nobody was really interested in the experiences of um, Australian aviators in World War Two, or all aviators in World War Two, and it's just, it it's sort of an interest that grew from there, and it's remained all my life. Now, I guess more mature people grow out of these childhood habits. Not me. I've just, I've I've just kept it rolling on into old age. <laughs> Turned it into a career as well. Indeed. Yeah. 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 So you're interested in both the personal stories of the men and the aircraft themselves, the different kinds. Yes. Basically, particularly, I used to love reading first-hand accounts because really, you know, a first-hand account is the ultimate primary source. And there was something about actually speaking to the people who actually went through it and sort of looking into their eyes and thinking, my God, those eyes actually saw it, saw all this 
extraordinary detail in living colour in their youth because we, we tend to think of that area as a black and white world because of the film footage, although so much colour is now coming out on YouTube and Facebook and that for these interested groups. But knowing that it was, you know, it, 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 when, when I used to... When, when I used to speak to these blokes about what they'd gone through, I, I saw it myself in colour as opposed to the black and white images on the television. So I found it very vivid and continued to do so. So the history was a passion for you and obviously a major part of your career now, but it was not your first career. No, I sort of stumbled into performing because it was the only thing I was really good at at school. or oh, wagging. I was, I was good at that. <laughs> um, oh, I could write. I, could, I was good at English, but that that's about all. And history when I applied myself, which I never really did. But you had a writing flair early on as well. Your breakout to fame was Degeneration, a show you co-created, co-wrote. Yes, yes. Uh, so stumbled into performance at school and then at university. And to cut a long story short, I went to Melbourne University and did an arts degree, and we did uh, reviews, sort of uh, university reviews and uh one was a, a couple back in the day in the 80s were particularly good and they toured nationally as a as a show in their own right and the abc saw us and picked us up and said look we're actually looking for a homegrown sketch comedy series do you want to have a crack do a pilot we did a pilot and got and got the job and that became the degeneration in the in the, in the mid 80s we did two seasons of degeneration the second of which has been lost it's very hard to find a copy of that second season of Degeneration, and it was really good too. And then um, fast forward happened after that, and then I did a bit of Full Frontal, and then I oh, just sort of varied out into writing and stage stuff now. So um, that's what I've been doing more or less on and off ever since. And that original crew on the Degeneration that was, uh, you know, made up of quite famous Australian greats. Oh yeah, that they're all the working dog people now they're all the people who brought us the castle and the dish and uh frontline and all those amazing things there it was this ocean of sketch comedy it was very popular but comedy company was winding down they'd started in, in the mid 80s and we sort of got going on seven in the late 80s so and we pinched a few people glenn came glenn robbins came over from comedy company and i think um oh, a couple of other people came and went too but it was this sort of um this, you know, this melting pot of Melbourne sketch-based writer-comedian performers, really. They were, they, were good, they, were good, they were good days. It was great fun to be involved with and um, it was very hard work. And we, we didn't even realise the success of it at the time because we had to do it. It was churning out, you know, an hour of sketch comedy a week. It was absolutely brutal, week after week. And we were exhausted by the end of it. But it, it, it was good and people still remember it very fondly, I have to say. <laughs> Which warms the cockles of my heart because I look back at it like it's a different life, really, because, you know, time moves on and you're not the same person really as you are in your youth. Well, you are, but you're not. And I look at it with a kind of uh, fondness of uh, my early career. Well, at the time, were you feeling any kind of pull towards print? Your parents were journalists. Oh, yeah. No, well, absolutely. Both my mother and father and my uncle have always been... Uh, uh, writers. Mum was a writer on the Women's Weekly during the war, and in a, in, in a bizarre coincidence, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but in a bizarre coincidence, she and I interviewed the same Spitfire pilot. Oh wow! She, while he was doing it, and myself, many many decades later, and he was a, uh, I think he was a four five one squadron 
pilot up in the islands, op- operating out of uh, Darwin. Mum had this column where she'd interview servicemen in 1943, 44, 45. And, you know, for the girls at home to meet these you know, gorgeous, young, handsome men flying flying and sailing and in the army as well. And she had a little column where she interviewed them. And one of them was interviewed by mum when, when, when he was 20 and I got him when he was about 90. <laughs> How about that? Did you know that going into the interview? No, I only realised that um, sadly after he died because I saw mum's clipping book after mum died as well. I was, oh, my God, I did him in... I did him in um, I think with the, I think the second book, uh, Fly. I can't recall his name actually either, but he's no longer with us either. But uh, it's a shame. Uh, shame I didn't remember it at, at the time, or didn't didn't know, wasn't aware of it. That would have been interesting to bring up. But time was against us. It's a hard connection to make as well, going in not knowing already. Indeed. Before we get to your writing career, you didn't just jump straight from TV to that. You had many careers going at once, uh, musicals, radio, TV, on the ABC. It's pretty diverse. Oh, I'm a man of many bills, Alex, um, <laughs> and I've got to pay them all. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I don't like standing still for long. I've got a fairly low boredom threshold, I think. Y- yes, well, I've, I've sort of diverse into um, – I was a theatre critic for a while with three newspapers, actually, The Herald, Sun, Australian and The Age. I stopped doing it because I, I kept pulling my punches. I sort of lost my bottle. I couldn't st- – keep saying bad things about people I knew who were doing their best on stage. So I, I actually gave that up uh, and did some column writing for a while. I had a little column with the, uh, the Qantas in-flight magazine, all of those sorts of things. But I always sort of knew I'd go into writing. And oh, I, I was at the ABC for, for uh, a few years broadcasting on the radio across Victoria occasionally, but I had a permanent gig in Tasmania broadcasting across ABC 936 Hobart. But the books came out because a friend of mine was doing, uh, was writing the biography of Bud Tingwell, the actor, the much-loved actor, who was also a photo reconnaissance pilot. And when it came to Peter Wilmoth writing Bud's war chapter, he kept ringing me up and saying, look, can you translate some of this technical stuff that Bud's telling me because I don't understand it? And as I was explaining to Peter, I just had this, notion that I should do my own book and just go around and chat to these guys and because you know often people don't understand what they did but I do a bit because I understand this stuff so that was it and that became an an embarrassingly easy process it was basically sealed in a day an hour later I rang the publisher of my friend Peter Wilmoth's book and said look I've got this idea and he said that sounds good give us 400 words so I just bashed them out to him then and then and he ran back and said yeah that sounds great We've got a, as it happens, we have a um, editor's meeting two days' time. I'll give you a ring. And that was it. Two days later, I had a contract. So that was my first foray into it. I did two more books of interviews. It was just basically tracking down former airmen. I wasn't fussy. I don't care if they'd been pilots or gunners or bombers or fighters or anything, really. I actually wanted more diversity. And I tried to interview everybody that contacted me or that was contacted on their behalf. And I tried to get to them all, and I wrote up virtually every interview I did. The mantra was that every man who flew during the Second World War has at least one extraordinary story, usually more. I even turned it in, into a stage show called Flack, which is still touring. We, we, we did a big tour of Australia two years ago, and, that, and we've got some more dates just this week, actually, where I actually 
become five of these guys on stage telling their story with my younger self sort of weaving in and out of the middle of it. But that's been a great thing to do as well. It's always because almost all the fellows that I do are now dead. So you get a real creative synergy there with your drama TV days and acting out these stories you've documented. Very much so. I mean, it's a kind of combination of all the things I do, sort of um, writing and researching and performing. It's, it's, um, it's been great. Although I realised uh, one of the fellows whose story was quite extraordinary, a man called Dudley Marrows, DSO, DFC, Sunderland pilot with 461 Squadron in Coastal Command, sunk a German U-boat and uh, dropped a dinghy to the survivors in a spontaneous act of compassion, 14 of which survived out of a crew of nearly 70. And they later formed the Survivors of U-461 Association, and his wife contacted them in the 60s. And then he befriended the surviving captain who then visited Australia and they became friends for life. And Dudley's alive still. He's 100 years old. And, and I actually saw him when I did a performance of um, Flack, which is what the show's called, at Lake Boga uh, a few months ago. And I'm actually in contact with his daughter to, uh, to come up. He's, in, he's 99. He's, he's, he's 100 in about a month. And I'm going up to celebrate his centenary that that's that's been a wonderful experience reconnecting with dudley that's amazing have you had many uh, veterans or more likely their family members see the show and your reenactment the family members have only two a guy called bruce clifton has come to see it twice so they're the only two surviving i think from the people that i do on stage bruce was a lancaster pilot whose aircraft exploded and he was blown out of it survived without a scratch and was the, the only surviving um he, he was the only survivor and he was the pilot too which is remarkable and he survived because he'd lost control of the aircraft because flack uh flack had knocked out his intercom so he was getting up from the cockpit to tell the rest of the crew sort of manually to bail out and because he wasn't strapped in at the time when the aircraft exploded the bomb load went off he said i was just expelled like a pip squeezed out of an orange the whole thing just went whoosh and i went with it but i didn't hit anything i was just sort of forced through the air by the blast but i just got a tiny little scratch above my nose and came down in one piece and i was in no pain and uh, it was just bizarre and uh that's his story and he's still alive today lives near back marsh in central victoria somewhere and the stories you're pulling together for Flak Fly, Heroes of the Skies, they're you know, Australian fighter pilots, bombers, etc., from Bomber Command, Pacific War, all over the theatre. Yes, absolutely. No, I'm, I, as I said, I, I wasn't fussy at all. It's a way of, I mean, it, it started almost as a kind of a voyeuristic almost sort of storytelling episode, but then I started to realise that I was the only person sometimes that these people had told these memories to. So the responsibility then became enormous and I started to feel it. And it was like, God, I'm holding these person's memories, these extraordinary memories from the, you know, the kind of trial of war of these of these people's youth. So that's why I wanted to keep doing more books and end up doing three because often it's the only record, literally the only record of these men's war of what they did in their what they did in their youth because so many times the families have read the stories and said we had no idea about this we just he didn't tell anyone and frankly we weren't, we weren't interested we confess 
but they told you, and it's absolutely astonishing. We didn't know he went through this. So then it became, well, this is more than just gathering stories. This, this is really quite important for myself and for the people concerned. But then you narrowed that focus last year with 44 days. Yes. Well, this was, um, this was an interesting experience because uh, Hashed asked me uh, to, uh, if I was interested in telling the story of the, of the 44 days, and I said, sorry, what story? <laughs> like most Australians, I, d I don't know about this amazing tale from the early day, the very early part of the Pacific War, where there was one single squadron that had been very hurriedly scratched together at the last minute to defend Moresby against the um, against the rampaging Japanese air, air power that was softening it up for invasion. And so I agreed to take on this job, and it became it became a different kind of book. In that it was the first one I didn't actually get the chance to speak to the men concerned. However, halfway through the research period, I discovered that virtually all the main pilots that I'd been writing about had in fact left these recordings and interviews they'd done in the 1980s with the Canberra War Memorial. And, uh, and, and some were online. Some I had to go up for to listen, listen, listen to the cassettes. But it was like these, these, these men whose, um, whose, whose stories I'd been relating from primary and secondary sources were suddenly alive because I could hear their voices talking about it really lucidly and really interestingly. It was a similar kind of path, if, if you like, even though they're no longer with us. But the story is remarkable. I mean, if there was ever a David and Goliath story of this one um, squadron flying sort of borrowed Kitty Hawk fighters that just by a stroke of luck had fallen into our lap because the whole shipload had been diverted from the Dutch who were, who'd, who'd already lost the game up in Borneo. And so this shipload of these modern fighter planes kept going south and ended up in Botany Bay, And at which point the Australian government said, oh, we'll have them, thank you very much, send us the bill. And they bolted them together at Bankstown Airport and it was the, it was the nucleus of three new fighter squadrons, uh, one of which, 75, was sent immediately into battle with very little training uh, to defend Port Moresby against Japanese air attacks that were coming over the hump of the Owen Stanley Ranges from Ley and Salamaua on the north coast. And so for, for six weeks, these blokes just went up and just blasted away in aircraft that were not suited to dogfight the Japanese fighters, the Zeros, but gave a wonderful account of themselves in a battle that could never be won, but... but but they certainly, it was the first time the Japanese had actually experienced any resistance to their, to their onslaught that everybody saw as being irresistible at that stage of the war because they, they hadn't been checked. This is March 1942, uh, five or so months after um, Pearl Harbour, where they were still on this amazing blitz of Southeast Asia that I think eclipses just about anything even the Germans were doing in Europe. I mean, they moved so fast and with such brutality and with such coordination and speed that everybody was overwhelmed. And so finally they reached the absolute end of their lines, which is basically Port Moresby, which they tried to get, as we know, with the, the Kokoda battle later that year. But earlier than, than that was the air war of um, Moresby and Kokoda, 
which is what the 44 Days book is about. Because you weren't engaging live with the subjects, do you think that gave your writing more objectivity because you were dealing with the sources? Well, yes, it, it certainly did. I, I had to use a lot more sources. And, uh, you know, but a, a, as I said, the discovery of those tape recordings gave me an ability to actually quote, uh, quote actual things that these fellows had said, which gives it a kind of a life that I wouldn't have had otherwise which has been great. And um, when the when these people have written their own stories helps enormously, as, as I'll, you know, I'll, you know, we're not jumping ahead to the Barney Greatrex book, but the fact that Barney himself wrote something and did an interview for a writer gives it so much more scope and so much more life because you can actually give a first-person voice to the story you're telling. Of course. This uh, next one's half literary review, half question. To my mind, your books all tackle the historical, political and social contexts relevant to the personal stories that you're telling. But oh, Crikey, really? Bloody hell. <laughs> but when you get to the heart of a I'll story... I'll take that as a compliment. Go on, sorry. <laughs> but when you get to the heart of a story, the characters, the adventure, the thrills, the terror, the action, I find your writing very cinematic, descriptive, fast, full of emotion. So my question is, after that review do you think your performance background has shaped your writing in any way i think it prob probably has that, that that's a very good observation but i think i i i i hate dry writing and and also i really do, i really believe writing at, at its best is a visual medium because you're putting pictures in people's heads so if you're not doing that i don't think you're writing properly especially with describing history because History is events, and events are events are full of colour and movement. And if you're not getting that, I don't think you're getting the history. So I like. I mean, I I'm not an historian. I'm a storyteller. Happy to be so. And to tell a good story, I think you have to work with the visual aspect of what you're doing. And I always try to do that when I can. Now, before we go on to your next book, I should disclose for the listeners that. I actually worked on your next book. Indeed. A very vital part of it too. <laughs> Thank you. You're too kind. So your book, next book, is Barney Greatrex, about World War II veteran Barney Greatrex. Barney was one of 12 men profiled in a documentary miniseries I directed called For School and Country. And myself and the rest of the team behind that doco, we knew Barney's story had to be told beyond it. And we have since been very fortunate to work with yourself and the publisher on this book, which I'd like to talk about with you now. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that's absolutely correct. Barney, who's an old boy of your school, was uh, many years before you went there, though, of course, <laughs> was a young, you know, ordinary young man, really, from the suburb of Sydney, who, like thousands others, joined the Air Force in the beginning of the Second World War, uh, broke off his studies and um, just joined the pool of the Empire Air Training Scheme and elected, strangely enough, to be a bomb aimer and not a pilot. They all wanted to be pilots, but Barney was happy to be a bomb aimer. So he trained as such, well, trained as such as, 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 as an observer and all sorts of things, did a bit of gunnery, and was sent into Bomber Command and was sent to 61 Squadron, beginning his, 30, his tour of 30 operations towards the end of 1943, just in time for the infamous, what they called an infamous series of air raids on the German capital, Berlin, conducted insanely in the winter of 43-44, where they decided for the first time, really, to attack Berlin and to try and bomb it. 
Arthur Harris, who was the head of Bomber Command, said, I can win you the war if you give me a free hand and all the resources I need to attack the German capital and I'll, I'll wreck it end to end, he claimed. Because he'd been claiming all sorts of things for two years. He'd been, he'd been claiming that he could win the war by bombing alone and he obviously had not been doing that. So he said, well, you haven't been giving me enough resources or enough planes. You give me, give me what I want and I'll be able to do it. Of course he didn't because he, um, he was something of a megalomaniac, um, Harris. It cost him a 1,000 Lancaster bombers <laughs> to do it. A 1,000 roughly were shot down during this campaign and for no real gain. Not really. It's hard to say what the point of the Battle of Berlin was, just except to smash up a few, um, few of the Berlin suburbs and kill a great number of, of its civilian inhabitants. There wasn't much military industry in Berlin. You know, it was a long way to go. Berlin is towards the east of Germany. Uh, away from the big industrial centres of the Ruhr, which are towards the west of Germany. But he was given a free hand to do it uh, under appalling conditions. Imagine what a, you know, the, the middle of a European winter and flying at 20,000 feet. Sometimes the temperatures were plummeting, you know, to, to minus 30, minus 40 centigrade. And um, it was very hard to bomb accurately. The weather was atrocious. The bombing aiming apparatus wasn't good enough to overcome it. And so Barney would have spent most of his tour doing these, these night and heading to Berlin and not really knowing what he was bombing because he couldn't. You bombed on the Pathfinder markers, but sometimes the Pathfinder markers couldn't mark what the target was anyway. So they just bombed what they thought was a target and hoped for the best. But he was getting towards the end of his tour, I think his 20th operation out of 30, and it was a trip to Augsburg in uh, February 44. And he was attacked by a night fighter over France, over Nancy, and he was shot down. And it came down virtually on the French-German border. The sole survivor of his aircraft, he managed to get out his own bomb aimer's hatch by a miracle, how, how he got out of it. <laughs> he was later questioned, how did you do that? Because the aircraft was in a centrifugal spin. It was in a spin because it had lost power. And he managed to get himself out of it. Came down, witnessed the death of the rest of his six crew and he was a sole survivor and wandered around and after a couple of days of getting hungry and cold and tired he decided to make the most fateful decision of his life was to knock on a door and hope for the best and that became his adventure because luckily he chose the right door of this little alpine village where he was taken in and funneled through the French resistance. Now, for some reason, which I've never been able quite to ascertain, he wasn't put into the uh, uh, rack lines where they tried to smuggle the airmen back to Europe. He was sort of kept by the French resistance and he sort of worked for them. He was actually given a number. He was given a... He was given a salary. He was given a salary. Uh, um, and so for, for the next eight months, he was uh, with his resistance cell, learning French, doing the old, doing little jobs for them witnessing a couple of the latter battles of the French resistance that happened around the Vosges Mountains towards the end of the, the middle and the end of 1944. And he also became involved in, a, in one of the um, Allied-led resistance assistance operations, codenamed Jedburahs. They were highly trained three-man teams that dropped in to kind of train the often fairly haphazard and chaotic French resistance organisations. And there were many because the French resistance spent most of the time fighting each other. <laughs> so, oh, that's, that's actually a little bit unfair. The, the resistance was really a kind of a, a, 
replicated French society. It was very divided and very antagonistic in, uh, unto itself, which is one of the reasons the Germans were able to defeat France so easily in 1940, but that's another story. So these blokes uh, came in speaking French and highly trained and tried to organise the resistance and give them some basic battle training. And Barney became part of then, and he, uh, he met these... Um, this British officer and an American officer and became friends with them and um, was able to guide them. And he was hidden by several French families who he kept in touch with for, for the rest of his life. That's an, another story. And eventually he was liberated after a, after a, a, a long engagement by the American forces around the Vosges Mountains of um, northeastern um, France, Have, spending a lot of time in hiding as well because the Germans were all around them. And eventually he sort of made it through to the American lines where he was uh, taken back and um, debriefed and told his amazing story to uh, first the Americans and the Brits and eventually found his way back to Australia. In fact, he was actually flown back from France to uh, England by Harris himself, Bomber Harris himself, who just sort of wandered past him at an airfield in Belgium and said, oh, what are you doing here? And said, well, sir, I'm waiting to get back to uh, England. OK, well, come back with me if you like. I'm going to spare a seat. And he came back and then told his story to virtually no one, just went back to his, uh, to a life working for his uh, family's uh, engineering company, amongst other things. And was only really until you, Alex, sort of um, prized the story out of an ageing Barney towards the end of his life. I, I, I should add that he's still with us, actually, Barney. I mean, he's a very old man now, but he's still living and he's in, living in Sydney. But his story has only recently been told, first by yourself and then by me. In, in this book, which uh, has been a great pleasure to write. It's been wonderful getting in, into the mind of this fellow and digging out what his uh, remarkable experience in France and in the RA, uh, the, in, 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 in Bomber Command was during World War II. It's been an amazing journey to watch Barney's story sort of you know, escape beyond the knowledge of his family, of course, and the community back in the Vosges, which he's stayed in touch with. I first met him and interviewed him along with Angus Horden just after his 91st birthday. And now he's a dear 97-year-old. We premiered that documentary when he was 95 in 2015. And now this book's coming out, which he and the family are so excited about. And it's so gratifying to see his face light up when he realizes this is really happening. He's finally having his story told. Because like many of the airmen you referenced uh, earlier and your other books, just didn't talk about it and didn't know if people were interested or weren't sure. And then suddenly we're bringing him along to school events, talking to large assembly crowds, and he's realizing all these young schoolboys are interested and got an author chasing him down to spend some time with him to yep. write, work on his book. It's been wonderful to watch this blossom. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to do it. You know, you sort of write a book like this and you feel like you, you've, you've done the journey yourself. I mean, Writing a book is, is is the strangest experience, writing any book, because, you know, for months and months you have this thing that's basically between you and between your your brain and a, and a screen that you're typing on. And then suddenly when it comes out, you flip it and you throw what's been a completely private matter out into the outer, the outer world, completely invert their thought processes to, to, to it being totally introverted, to be... Uh, to publicise it where they're completely extroverted about it. But this has been a great one to do and for and my journey ha has been very f fulfilling um, doing, this, doing th this story and I'm so glad I had the opportunity 
to do so. And it's great to know that people will read the book, hopefully, and discover what it was like, what war was like. I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, I, mean, I, I try not to pull any punches. I'm pretty severe on the kind of what, what I believe to have been the complete uselessness of a lot of Bomber Command's efforts during the Second World War. Uh, not entirely, but, but particularly this period, the, the Battle of Berlin period, the Berlin raids, which were far more politically motivated than militarily motivated. There was very little tactical point in what they were doing. They just cost a lot of lives, especially in the air, uh, but on the ground also, of course, this business of attacking a civilian population, hoping they were going to throw the towel in. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't have done it. And it, they would never have done it anyway. It didn't happen in London. And why would it happen over Germany? But I also feel sorry for the airmen who came back from World War II from Bomber Command because the great turning against them after the war, I think, was very sad and very unjust. So a bit like what the Vietnam fellows had to go through, having had their, had their government you know, request them to do this uh, operation and then come back and to be shunned by the same government and the same people that got them over to do it in the first place. Absolutely terrible. I find uh, Barney's story so interesting and unique for many reasons, but one of them being the diversity of experiences he has. It's comedy, it's grief, it's drama, it's action. One scene, he's having lunch at a restaurant and ne the next table is filled with German officers and he's in France with one of his couriers and just told, you're a dumb mute Frenchman, don't say anything and we'll get through this lunch. And then, you know, a few chapters later, he's walking through the dark with these guys trying to pick up a paratrooping American major. Yes, absolutely. And and the uh, there's a wonderful story. I think it's that same restaurant. There were, there were Germans in this restaurant because it was in... Um, Epinal, I think, yeah, uh, which was a significant sort of uh, regional town there. And his guide had left, had, had seen someone outside to go and have a chat with him. So I'll, I'll be back in a minute. Just don't cause any attention. Of course, as soon as he goes, the waitress comes up to him and starts saying, well, sir, what do you want in French? And Barney doesn't speak a word of French. And so he's sort of, and he, at the next table, there's a, 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 like you know, a few feet away, there's a table full of German officers. <laughs> So if he's stumbling through trying to speak to this this French waitress who's getting more and more impatient, saying, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's just like a scene out of A Low Low. It is like a scene out of A Low Low, and you can imagine the checkered tablecloths, can't you? And uh, You can. <laughs> that's when Frenchmen still wore berets, I think, and waistcoats. And luckily his, uh, his, um, um, his, his handler came back in the... Nick of time to say, oh, I'm sorry, he's just a mute Frenchman. How many mute French, mute dumb Frenchmen would there have been in World War Two? I mean, there must have been so many of these Allied guys who'd, who'd been shot down and said, okay, you are now a dumb French mute farmer. And <laughs> and must have been hundreds of them. <laughs> and the Germans never realised. Yeah, I know, it's extraordinary that they didn't pick it up. Yeah, and that's contrasted with, and I won't spoil how the scene ends, we'll let readers find out, but that contrasts so... Oh, starkly with the introduction to the book where Barney's in a hut and he's with his uh, resistance colleagues and there's another man who's come to the hut and they're working out he's a spy and Barney's not sure what's going to happen next. Yes, that's how, that's when Barney had that sort of epiphany of like, how the hell 
did I get? What am I doing? Where am I? How did my very ordinary life get to this point where I'm in this absolutely awful situation? You know, there I was a couple of years ago. I was at my desk at Sydney Uni doing engineering. I was doing okay. And suddenly, now here I am in the middle of this French forest in the middle of a war that's not in my country. But <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? I know that he had that kind of thought going through his head. And just quickly on writing the book, you had access to a wealth of archive material from the family, the documentary I worked on, close connections to witnesses of the events, descendants of those witnesses and other primary sources. And you got to spend time with dear old Barney himself and Barney's brother, Anthony. Yes. Did, did that range of sources make this writing this book a bit of a hybrid experience between, oh, say, Flack and 44 Days? Very much so. Um, it, it's a long form story on, on one individual's experiences, but I was able to colour it with so many things. I mean, you mentioned, the, I mean, the, 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 the fact that Barney is, is, is alive is so important, but also his, his, his brother, Anthony, who was also in the Air Force in Australia during World War II, his wonderful um, yes, sister-in-law, Cathy, she was very helpful with the early Great Creek story. But also things like, I mean, the wonder of the internet, the report, the Jedburgh report, in which Barney is mentioned several times, is online and was is available from the Kew Records Office in London, which I was able to access. And there it is, this 20 beautifully written, type, fools cap typed pages of um, Lieutenant Colonel Guy Prendergast, who was leading this mission. He wrote the whole thing up vividly and with such colour and such clarity and detail in that wonderful well-educated Englishman style. And there's, and there's lots of humour in it, a lot of irony, because, uh, you know, he kind of despaired at the incompetence a lot of the time of the French resistance and, like, and despairing, look, and it was like, God, I've been so well-trained. I've been so highly trained in, you know, you know, um, French language and and weapons training and uh, all my SAS uh, to train these people, but they're all bloody useless. It's like herding cats. Is it? Yeah, I may as well have just... <laughs> Um, arrived here and just sort of said, look, do your best. There's nothing I can do for you because they're often so undisciplined, the French uh, resistance. Because they were the resistance, well, and rightly so. I mean, they were just they were amateurs, you know. They were Often they were boys sort of just wandering up and joining a resistance cell because they wanted to escape the Germans. They hadn't had any military training or military aspirations. It was just, well, that's all I can do now. I'm on the run. I may as well uh, throw my lot in with the um, resistance and try my luck there. So, And so these people that had to go in and try and train an army, I mean, it was an impossible task. But all this is written up in this fabulous report that I managed to find online. But that was one of the unexpectedly diverse sources, as you say, that... Uh, was it was afforded me in the writing of this book and Barney's story continues to this day effectively a couple of highlights just from the last few years in uh, 2013 his nephew Charlie Mort masterminded a fantastic group trip to France they took Barney 93 year old Barney was flown to France and they toured the crash sites and the mountains and various other key locations and in 2016 Barney is awarded the Legion of Honor Yes, what a wonderful thing, awarded by the French uh, the French consulate, I believe. And uh, I, I know quite, quite a few former Bomber Command airmen who operated, who assisted in liberating France from, I mean, that's, you know, this most terrible 
regime. One of the most, and people forget that. Sometimes we, we think of the Germans as kind of jokes, really, because, you know, after all, they lost and um, they weren't there for long. But to have your country, and I think someone said to Barney while he was there, look, you know, why are you doing this? And he said, well, you just don't know what it's like when you're having your country invaded by these bullies and thugs and psychopaths you know you'll do anything to get rid of them and um so that's why these men have been honored in their latter years of their life finally by the french and giving them their highest award because that's what they did they helped clear them out because they weren't going to go otherwise that's for sure well michael i'm very proud of the book and the small part i played but it's your hard work and brilliant writing that have captured this man's remarkable story and it's out now Thank you very much, Alex. It's been lovely talking to you, and thank you for your help as well. So, Michael, people will see you on the road publicising the new book, but if they want to get in touch online, where can they find you? Uh, yes, um, my website, michaelveach.com.au. To, um, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. You can get me that way too. But, um, no, I'm very socially media accessible, so I'm, and I'd love to have a chat with anyone who wants to contact me. Well, I recommend everyone does look Michael up on his website and social media. I know he's got a bunch of other exciting projects in the pipeline of various formats, so everyone should check that out. And they should definitely check out his new book, Barney Greatrex. It's a cracking read of heroism, adventure, and a healthy dose of luck. Thanks for your time today, Michael. Thanks, Alex. If you like this episode, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. You can even leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people discover the show. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. You can also check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. All our information about our book with Michael is there. You can also check out www.theschoolandcountry.com. But I can't encourage you enough to check out Michael Veach's new book. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget, 